Yesterday, Canada's defense minister formally apologized on behalf of the federal government to victims of military sexual misconduct. It's a long-awaited apology, so what took them so long, and what now? Niagara Regional Police have charged Marineland for allegedly using animals for a park performance without authorization. Camille Labchuk, a lawyer and executive director of Animal Justice, will join us to talk about that. And in the aftermath of the disastrous floods that cut off Canada's main port, the government will now hold a supply chain summit with industry figures and shippers to address the many concerns. We'll talk about that as well. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin with, as uh, we mentioned, uh, the federal government has now formally apologized to current and former members of the military for systemic issues in dealing with sexual misconduct. Global's Kyle Benning reports. I am apologizing to you on behalf of the government of Canada. It was an announcement two years in the making. The federal government's formal apology to current and former armed forces members who were survivors of sexual misconduct. The very institution charged with protecting and defending our country has not always protected and defended its own members. The apology is part of a $900 million class action lawsuit settlement from 2019. The Deputy Minister for the National Defence Department and Canada's top military officer also offered apologies. Well, to talk about this and uh, some of the other things happening out of Ottawa, so pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Laurie Turnbull. Dr. Turnbull, of course, is the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Uh, doctor, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time. Hope you're doing well today. Thanks so much for having me on. That's like, uh, great to have you here. Uh, the apology we knew was coming from uh, from Minister Anand. She talked about this just after she took over the portfolio uh, some weeks ago about crafting something like this. Uh, there was uh, another version of this uh, by the new head of uh, defense staff, of course, uh, Gen- Staff General uh, Wayne Eyre. Uh, the Prime Minister even uh, commented about it. He was not there for this particular announcement, but he did comment on uh, another announcement that he was making. The follow-up that I'm hearing, though, uh, Doctor, from just about everybody else is, yeah, okay, so what are you going to do about it? Is, is, that, is that the consensus you're hearing, too? I think so, and I think that was even the consensus before we heard the actual apology yesterday. So I watched it, and I mean, you see, like, the Minister gets up, and then... Um, uh, Wayne Eyre, and then the Deputy Minister Jody Tom- Thomas. And so the whole thing took about 40 minutes. And yeah, I think there was a sense even going into it that how much can an apology really affect things? It seemed like the content of the apology was very much addressing the like the circumstances, the the experience of someone who had been in the military and perhaps, you know, had an experience of sexual harassment or assault or trauma and try, you know, maybe try to report that or felt that they couldn't report that. And the organization essentially wasn't there for them and didn't provide, you know, a space where, where things could be dealt with and addressed properly. And essentially that this was not a safe place to work. And that's a huge, you know, that's a huge admission But at the same time, as you say, you know, like, okay, now what, right? Like, are we going to, how are we going to be addressing this going forward? Anyone who heard this apology, you know, is that going to affect their behavior? Is that going to make people think, oh God, you know, like this, I better make sure that I'm, I'm not contributing to a toxic environment. Like, I'm not sure whether this is a change moment or, or not. And and when you start looking at some of those numbers, you have to ask those questions. And I think there are legitimate questions. The other uh, comment that that I think uh, is very relevant, very germane to this as well, is that uh, the apology, it, it, from most people's minds anyway, seemed to be very authentic from the minister and on. I, I, I get that. 
Uh, but all this was outlined in, in two previous reports about the, that what they should be doing and how they should be addressing this. And, uh, and nothing's ma- not of any substance really has happened over the years. Why is it going to be different this time? Um, you know, the, what we need now is some sort of, okay, how is this actually going to happen? How are you going to try to mobilize a cultural change in an organization that is going to be extremely difficult to do? And so I don't know you know, whether the apology really gives us any kind of a sense of what's to come or not. I don't think so. I didn't see anything that, that looked like a plan or, or anything else. And as you say, like they've had reports, they've had, like, there's no shortage of information or analysis on what's going on in that organization. And so I, I think that the apology is really, you know, a kind of a value statement from the, from the government and from the leaders in the military and outside that, you know, we see this as a problem and we're going to do something about it. But how that's going to shake out going forward is is definitely not, to me, it's not any more clear now than it was two days ago. Well, and I guess the frustration, as I looked at some of the feedback from this too, is that, again, it looks like the opposition parties are just going to use this as a political football again. Um, and, and, and that's disconcerting. Um, I know that uh, defense critic for the conservatives, uh, Carrie Lynn Finley, uh, says the simple fact is that for six years, the liberals have failed to address the sexual misconduct crisis in the military. Uh, she could have added, and for the 10 years before that, our government did the same thing. Uh, this is a systemic problem. It's it's not a liberal problem. It's a, it's a government problem and a military problem. That's it. And that point was made yesterday in the apology that, you know, successive governments, this is something that they have essentially turned a blind eye to, have not repaired, even though they had the information. And so... Um, as much as the yes, the, anything these days is going to end up a political football, and this will certainly be part of the, the dialogue and the debate in the House of Commons. But I mean, it's going to take a lot. Just just as I think it's fair to say that this is a long term issue, and there have been governments, you know, government after government has not done the right thing on this. It's going to take more than one government to fix it too. This isn't going to be a change overnight. And I mean, it's it's I guess somewhat encouraging to see the leadership on the political side and the public service side and the military side all say we all have a role to play in this but it's going to require you know really you know cultural change organizational change maybe the fact that some like the organizations are going to happen out or sorry the investigations will happen outside the organization will have some effect and some effect at building trust and things but essentially i think you know if if you're a person who's thinking about a military career are you feeling more encouraged now than you would have been before? Like, I don't know. And I, I really don't think that we're going to see, you know, any, any clear change anytime soon. This is going to be another thing that requires government after government to really do the right thing. And we, I think we're reminded of the enormity of this. Uh, we know that in the class action suit that you just referenced, uh, there have been 19,000 claims submitted so far, and the action might extend the deadline, so that number is likely to increase. 40% of them are, are claims submitted by men. Uh, that are alleging sexual misconduct. I mean, this is a, a huge, huge problem. And you're right, it's it's not going to get fixed with the stroke of a pen. Uh, you've got to think that there's going to be some personnel uh, decisions made here about senior ranking staff, I would imagine. Obviously, General Ayer is, is, is one of those examples as the new head. Uh, but uh, they had trouble keeping somebody in that office for longer than three or four months at a time. So hopefully there's going to be some consistency there. But you, you've got to figure that this has got to filter down through the ranks as well. And it's true. It's true. Like even if you can see that leadership position last for a while, I think that's going to be key. Like if you see if you keep having the trend, like the turnover, and there's not any sense of like a kind of 
forward runway for a leader is going to be very difficult to make any kind of change. But you're right. I mean, how do you turn attitudes? How do you change things in an organization? And whether it's a military or not, anytime you're thinking about changing an organization, that's going to require, as you say, you know, change at all levels, change at all ranks in the organization. And so how do you actually get that done in an organization like the military? That's going to be hard. That's going to be difficult conversations and difficult you know, choices to make about leadership at all levels, because you need buy-in at all levels for this to be able to take hold. With uh, Dr. Laurie Turnbull from Dalhousie University, and another announcement that uh, kind of got shoved aside, but I think is equally important, uh, was the government's announcement yesterday that they're uh, preparing to spend about $40 billion to compensate First Nations children uh, that were harmed by Ottawa's underfunding of uh, child and family services on reserve. This has been a very contentious issue as well. And uh, to have uh, Indigenous Relations Minister Miller making this announcement yesterday, uh, is, is this a positive step? Does this mean that the government is actually looking for solutions here as opposed to just kicking it down the road? You'd like to think that there's some good faith on the part of the government that they're going to do this, and I, they didn't have a choice about it. Um, I, th- I think, to be honest, with re- with respect to um, the fiscal update that we're going to see today, it's going to be one of the focal points for sure, and perhaps one of the only... Um, I, I don't well. I don't think we're going to see a whole bunch of spending announcements today. Is what I'm trying to say. So there will be a sense of focus on this particular one, and I think there's still a lot of pressure on the government to define in their third term what they really mean by making progress on reconciliation, particularly since it's been such a key issue for them. But they haven't. You know, they, they've still got the boil water, like boil water advisories that are outstanding. Like, what are you going to do to start cementing cementing this legacy piece? You know, for real. Let's talk about the, the the fiscal update, which is going to be coming later on today from uh, Minister Freeland, uh, and, and the usual cries from the opposition parties saying, you know, less taxes, uh, less spending, yada yada yada. Uh, but put this in perspective of of what we see our mounting numbers right now of, of the new variant, uh, concerns uh, from health officials about what this is going to do and what it might actually do to the economy. I don't think we're heading for a, a shutdown, but there could be some some adverse effects as a result of this. Does the government have any choice but to, to maintain the, the, the course they're taking right now with assistance programs? Uh, it doesn't seem to be uh, the smart time or the prudent time to say, okay, it's time to, to put a sunset clause on some of these programs with this new variant very much alive. Yeah, it was interesting. A few of the comments that we heard this past week about this new variant, especially from um, Anthony Fauci in the U.S. when he said, I didn't expect this to last this long. I mean, absolutely. Nobody expected, I think, this the pandemic yeah. to last this long. And from the public health side, obviously, that's the most critical piece. But the economic side, too. Like when governments are rolling out these programs and they're making assumptions about how much how much this is going to cost is based on how long this is going to last and who's going to need these programs. And so now when we're looking at the possibility, again, I mean, not necessarily of a complete lockdown. And I think, you know, the last person who wants to go there is Doug Ford because he's looking at a vote in June. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, we're still, you know, at a, at a point where things aren't certain. And even the the announcement that we heard yesterday from Minister Freeland and Tiff Macklem at the Bank of Canada, they're saying essentially, you know, we've, we're looking at a five-year trajectory here where things are not normal. Things are not back to normal. The complications that have been caused to the economy by the, by the pandemic, this is more complicated than we thought. And so we're going to need some time. We're going to need some a little bit more time, space, wiggle room to figure out how to manage all of this. And part of the pressure is going to be, do you continue those programs, even if there's effects, you know, like a f- like flushing money into the system? Is that having some negative effects? Is it better to manage that differently, you know, than keep 
pushing these programs out. And so I think that's that's part of what we'll hear from Minister Freeland today is a kind of state of the union with respect to finances and how they're going to continue to tackle inflation at the same time as they're, you know, protect protecting jobs and figuring out how this is all going to work. Uh, everybody's talking inflation now uh, in, in Ottawa. All the opposition parties, the government ministers are all talking about this. It's kind of like Mark Twain's old adage about the weather. Everybody talks about it. Nobody's doing much about it. Uh, Especially, you know, the fact from the comments uh, from a former Bank of, Governor, Bank of Canada Governor Stephen Pelosi uh, last week, they basically said, look, the government spending, is, it was not the problem. That's not what's causing inflation. He says that was yeah. the smart thing to do. Does that give uh, Minister Freeland a little more wiggle room to, to carry on down this road without, uh, with, with that, with that I, I, maybe not, the, support, the word may not be support here, but at least uh, validation for what they have done in the past? I think so. I think there's, it's interesting, like there's a lot of, um, debate between economists about what's causing the inflation and some of it might not some of that debate and some of the research might not totally align with some of the things that politicians are throwing around but um, I think you know Christian Freeland indicated yesterday she heard the former Bank of Governor Bank of Canada governor's comment she agreed with him um, and so I think yeah I mean if she's I can't imagine a scenario where the government is going to be super quick to wrap these programs when there's still a need for them but I think there's going to be a sense that if we want to look at in the long term how to steady the economy, and now that the Bank of Canada has not moved toward a dual mandate, but there's more of an acknowledgement that, yes, we do look at the job situation. We do look at how to protect you know, full employment, but we're not necessarily putting a target on that, but we're saying, yes, it's part of our calculation. And also uh, not just the numbers in terms of employment, but a more diverse um, workforce and things like that. Like there's a sense that we're, we're working towards something. And so it's not necessarily that the government is going to want to keep those programs running like as long as possible. But for now, if it looks like it's not the time to turn off the taps, then I think she's absolutely got the wiggle room not to. I got about a minute left here, and I, I've got to okay. ask you about this because it's an issue that even the prime minister touched on yesterday, and that, of course, is Bill Twenty One in Quebec, and and it, it came to light once again, of course, because of the incident last week where a teacher was removed from the classroom for wearing a hijab. All three of leaders, O'Toole, Singh, and Trudeau, have all said that they oppose the legislation in principle. Nobody seems to want to touch this. Uh, when asked about it again yesterday, as you know, the prime minister said, "Well, I don't want to get involved yet." Uh, that's a, an interesting phrase. Uh, what's he waiting for? It, the Quebec election? You're right. And we saw this uh, in the debates, in the leaders' debates, which I turned yeah. on the other day just to watch again. because I was thinking, oh, <laughs> This is sort of where we saw a lot of this come out, where the leaders do not want to take a stand against Quebec's right to do this, essentially. So they're all kind of, I, I would say with the, the exception, well, actually, no, I was going to say the exception of Jigmeet Singh, but really all the leaders are saying, this is not the right thing to do, but Quebec has the right to do it. And so I'm not sure how long that's going to carry favor with voters who are kind of saying, listen, yeah, Quebec has the autonomy. There is provincial autonomy and that's fine. But really, we're, we're going to sit by and, and, and like, where, where is the leadership from the federal government on the protection for minorities in Quebec? And if this is something that the prime minister says is important to him, as you say, what is he waiting for in terms of taking action? He doesn't want to pick a fight with Quebec. So we're seeing, you know, politics and policy kind of come to a come to a head here. Yeah, and it's the wordsmithing, I guess, that upsets an awful lot yeah. of people. You know, they have the right to do it. Well, the court said they don't. Uh, they invoked yeah. the notwithstanding clause, and that's the only reason this law is still in existence. So uh, somebody's going to have to get their hands dirty on this, and I just don't know when it's going to happen. Uh, always a pleasure, uh, Doctor, to have you on the program. Thanks so much for this, and hopefully we'll talk again soon down the road. 
That sounds great. Have a good one. Thank you. Dr. Laurie Turnbull from Dalhousie University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Transportation Minister Omar Al-Gabra says the government is now looking to overhaul the rebate program for electric vehicles to more closely align with the kinds of cars that Canadians actually want to buy. Mia Rabson has some details for us. Ottawa's electric car rebate program has helped put 121,000 new electric vehicles on Canadian roads in the last two and a half years. The program lowers the cost of new plug-in vehicles up to $5,000 each, but only if the car's base model costs less than $45,000. Algabra says most of the new electric SUVs and pickup trucks coming onto the market will cost more than that. Algabra says the program has to be adjusted to accommodate the preference Canadians have for bigger vehicles. He's also looking to extend the rebates to buyers of used electric vehicles for the first time. Mia Rabson, The Canadian Press, Ottawa. This is all done under the guise, of course, of uh, the Buy America problem uh, uh, situation. It is a problem as far as the Canadians are concerned uh, with uh, the Biden administration's plan to uh, offer large rebates, uh, but only if the vehicle is built in America. How should the Canadian government respond to this? Uh, Joining us to talk about this is Noah Fry, who is a PhD student in political science at McMaster University. Uh, Noah, pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me. Let me, but you wrote about this, by the way. I should just remind our listeners, uh, an op-ed piece that was in the conversation at the website, theconversation.com, a couple of weeks ago, I guess it was published. Uh, and the, the sense, I guess, and the gist of what you were saying here is, uh, stop asking the U.S. government to please don't hurt us by doing this. The, this government has to be proactive and, and, and develop their own policy that's going to be competitive for the industry here in this country. Is, is that essentially what you're asking them to do here? Yeah, I think that's a pretty fair encapsulation of what I'm asking. I think we've been burnt over the last 12 years a number of times from different political parties within the United States, from Obama to Trump especially to now Biden. Um, And in this particular case, this was part of the Democratic platform. It was pretty explicit that they were going to be going down this road. Mm -hmm. So we shouldn't be surprised. We should have policy options available to us uh, ready to go. Uh, And I think we are a little slow to react in this case as well as past yeah, because that's been the government reaction in the past, hasn't it? To simply say, well, you know, give, come, you know, cut us some slack here, uh, as opposed to saying we'll be competitive. And, and then you've got maybe the other extreme, too, a, a couple of the ministers, Minister Ng among them, uh, saying, well, you know, this could start a tariff war if that's the way you guys want to go, uh, which is probably not going to help us in the long run, is it? No, no, a tariff war would not be good. Now, in, in fairness to them, there may not be too many options available. One is to turn inward and kind of insulate your industry. Another is to threaten uh, dispute settlement, which right now it seems like they're looking at both. Um, you know, the ultimate byproduct could be uh, negative for consumers, but it could be positive in terms of the, the national marketplace and employment. What I, I, Let's talk about definitions, because that maybe seems to be at the root of some of the conflict that's going on here. What's your sense, Noah, of what they mean when they say buy American? Because it seems to change from administration to administration. I think you're right. Um, the Trump administration had their own particular definition. Uh, the Biden administration is very focused on unionized work, particularly in this case. Mm. Uh, buy American, focusing... Oh, I think uh, I think Noah froze there. We'll see if we can reconnect with him in just a couple of seconds. Uh, the, the point we're making is is the, uh, we say the definition of this, and uh, in the op-ed piece that uh, that Noah wrote called "Canada Should Look Inward to Address American Protectionism," protectionism, uh, they talked about those uh, negotiations with previous administrations. Are you back with us, Noah? I think so. 
Good. Yes, we are. Okay, we got you back here. Uh, love the remote technology. Anyway, you were talking about uh, the, the different approach that administrations have. The, the Obama administration, as you mentioned in the piece, also had a Buy American policy, but they, they tended to water that down a little bit, uh, especially when it came to the auto industry. Yeah, exactly. So the Obama administration focused especially on procurement uh, when it came to uh, government agencies buying American goods. Now, that's also reflected in the Biden administration right now as well. They have some procurement policies, but the Obama administration, to their credit, did back down a little bit and uh, relieve Canada's uh, interest to a certain degree. So we'll see where that happens again. And my suspicion is it's probably pretty unlikely. Which is kind of surprising because when we talk about those days in the Obama administration, uh, Joe Biden was the vice president. I mean, he was at the table when those negotiations and those discussions were happening. Right. I think it's reflective of a particular point in American politics. You know, they had more leeway in the past politically to uh, give some concessions, if you want to call them concessions, or be more uh, lenient with neighboring countries. I think right now there's uh, a certain anxiety within the United States, one around free trade more generally, but also within the government. And, uh, you know, multiple crises are converging at once between social justice, between the COVID pandemic economic concerns. So the Biden administration is trying to walk this tightrope and there's only so much they can give. Because I know in the past, uh, you mentioned this in the piece, uh, we always tended to rely on the, uh, the the supply chain issues with the auto industry that, you know, what do you mean by a car that's manufactured in the States? Because those tend to cross the border back and forth uh, for different parts and, and different elements of the construction of the automobile or the truck, whatever the case might be. Uh, that doesn't seem to be a factor as far as the Biden administration is concerned. And I think your point's well taken. Uh, the politics in America is much different than it was back in 2009, isn't it? Uh, it's it's much more uh, polarizing now, uh, much more incendiary. And, uh, you know, a misstep by any administration right now uh, could be politically fatal. Exactly. And I think Buy American has become a very popular bipartisan talking point. Uh, and policy for that matter. It's perceived as being within the domestic interest. I think a lot of people would reject that perspective, but that seems to be the case with the larger American population. And then right now, you know, the Biden administration is not looking so favorably in the polls. So, you know, there's another incentive for them to lean into more popular policies like by American. Are we going to see the Canadian government acquiesce? There's always been a hesitancy for them to actually get into the idea of, of offering substantive rebates in situations like this. So they're going to have to bend that rule to try to, to keep this industry alive and, and, if not prospering, at least sustainable. I think that is likely. Now, they're talking right now about harmonization, and I think that's yeah. quite difficult for a couple reasons. One is that the very nature of the way we incentivize electric vehicles is different from the United States. There's a greater provincial or subnational government promotion within Canada. So Quebec, for instance, offers $8,000. Uh, Ontario used to offer a fair amount. BC offers a fair amount. In the United States, it's more centralized. The federal government is really leading the charge. Hence why the big figure is 12500 versus the Canadian figure, which is right now about 5000 So there will be some difficulties there that if we want to align with uh, the American government, there would be a huge cost burden to us. Also, there are some concerns around discrimination, which they have cited. Um, what will our trading partners think if we emulate what the United States is doing? 
Interesting. And, and this is a very, very important discussion that's going on right now. And, and I'm glad you brought up the Ontario aspect of this, too, uh, because of uh, Doug Ford's uh, recent commitment uh, to EVs. Uh, yet he doesn't want to seem to get involved in the, the rebate program at all. Uh, as they say in the business, more to come on this. Uh, Noah, great to get your perspective on this. Uh, I think the other shoe is going to drop on this sooner than later. And I look forward to our conversation then. But thanks for joining us today. Perfect. Thank you for having me. Take care. Noah Fry, PhD student of political science at McMaster University, who has uh, studied this extensively. And by the way, I think it's still on theconversation.com uh, if you want to go down to that webpage and uh, you can see his essay there. This is the Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL London, 900 CHML in Hamilton. Well, uh, Marineland has been charged with uh, using dolphins and whales for unauthorized performances. This is not new. Well, it is new this particular time because there's a law that's in place that hasn't been there for quite some time. Uh, and it is, uh, well, the technical term it is bill s203 and uh well it's being employed right now and this is all going to go before the courts probably sometime in february joining us to talk about this is a uh, camille labchuk camille is a lawyer and executive director of animal justice morning, uh, camille great to have you back on the program thanks for joining us today have we lost camille i'm here there you are hi can you hear hi, me now camille i can hear uh, you good morning this is uh, the Gremlins are at work today with our, our remote broadcast, but we do apologize for that. Let's let's talk a little bit about this latest uh, twist, which is happening here. You and I have talked about uh, Marine Land in the past. Uh, I mean, this is part of my commentary on CHML this morning, as well, talking about uh, this new law, uh, an amendment to the Criminal Code Bill S two hundred three, which uh, basically uh, prohibits the use of, well, dolphins in this particular case for entertainment purposes. Uh, talk to us about what happened here, the investigation and the charges that have been laid, if you could, Camille. Sure, sure. So that law was passed, as you noted, in 2019, and it was part of the effort to completely phase out keeping whales and dolphins in captivity, which Canadians agree is just no longer morally acceptable in this day and age. So not only did the, the law try to phase out captivity of these animals, but it also protected them from these demeaning performances. And Marineland has continued to engage in what it calls educational performances at Marineland. Um, Animal Justice received footage of uh, some of these performances involving dolphins, and I can tell you that there was a lot of elements in there that I think most people would consider to be entertainment and not education. So trainers announcing a dolphin dance party, playing the song Mambo Number no. 5 and other pop music, uh, dolphins spinning through the air, doing tricks on command, pushing trainers through the water. And... Uh, you know, we submitted a complaint to the Niagara Region Police because we were concerned that this was offside of the law. And thankfully, they've done their diligence and they've decided to lay charges. And we applaud them because the law is only as good as its enforcement. And, and it's important to note here, by the way, it's the police that laid the charge after their investigation uh, based on, as you mentioned, the law that's been in place since uh, June now of 2019. Uh, and as I mentioned in my commentary, I, I, I was astounded, by the way, by, by Marineland's explanation that this is for quote-unquote educational purposes. Uh, I, I mean, first of all, as you and I have talked about in the past, I mean, you know, the natural habitat for dolphins is not a, a tank in, in an amusement park. Uh, it's the ocean. And I know I have never had the privilege of actually seeing dolphins in, in the ocean, but I've seen a lot of film on this. And I don't ever remember, Camille of natural uh, environment like this, uh, you know, uh, spinning a, a beach ball on the snout or, or, you know, jumping through hoops. I don't think they tend to do that when they're out in the in the, in the the ocean, do they not? No, not so far as I'm aware, and I'm pretty sure there's okay. no playing pop music either. And I know they're, they're frisky and they like to have fun. They're, they're, they're fun at, at mammals, and but uh, 
Let's talk a little bit about the tricks and the training because this is a, a very contentious part of this whole process about how they're trained to do this. And, and you know, there's there have been some concerns about abuse in the past, uh, about how they get them to actually do these sorts of tricks. Uh, that That's all part and parcel, I think, of the debate that went on before this law was actually passed. Uh, is this the first real test case for this? This is the first test case. That's right, Bill. Uh, no, no one has been charged under this law previously. And in fact, no one realistically could be because there's only two places when the law was passed that still had wells of dolphins, Vancouver Aquarium and Marineland. Vancouver Aquarium either is transferring or has transferred their sole remaining dolphin to a facility in the state so she can be with other dolphins and not all by herself and had stopped doing performances because of local bylaws in, in the park uh, where, where, it is, um, where the facility is. So Marineland really is an outlier here. And I think it's significant that we're going to actually see a judge hopefully adjudicate uh, this provision of the criminal code and decide whether Marineland should face criminal sanction for this conduct. The other concern here is where these these animals end up. Uh, and uh, we've seen this happen in the past. And I know you expressed some concern, uh, especially uh, with uh, some of the beluga whales that, that had been on site earlier and, and at some of these other marine uh, parks. Uh, they simply get sold to other parks. Uh, you know, so the captivity continues. Uh, the reality here, and I, I, this is something I think that has to be part of the conversation, I'm sure it will be, uh, is these these animals should be in animal sanctuaries. They should not be in parks. They should not be in, in concrete swimming pools. Uh, they, they should be out in environments. Uh, those sanctuaries exist already. It's simply a matter of, of agreeing that this is where they should be and transporting them to said places. Yeah, that's absolutely right, Bill. The the Whale Sanctuary Project is building a whale sanctuary in Nova Scotia, which will be the first of its kind in Canada. And the idea is that they net off a large cove or bay so that whales and dolphins have hundreds and hundreds of times more space than they would in a tiny tank at a place like Marineland. And we're calling on federal and provincial governments to get involved and make sure that whales and dolphins from Marineland end up in a place like this. Uh, Bill, I'm sure you know this, but there's rumors swirling that Marineland is for sale for real estate development. And a lot of people are asking the question, what's going to happen to these animals? So that's why we say it's so important for governments to get involved and make sure that these animals have a better outcome than they would in the park. They obviously can't be released into the wild because either they were born in captivity or captured at a young age, and they just don't have those survival skills. So a sanctuary is the best option for them. The other element to this, too, and uh, you, you talked about the potential sale, and, and we don't know for sure what's going to happen or not happen in that particular case. Uh, but the, the, the re- perspective here is that these whole, this whole concept of, of, of you know, putting animals in cages or in, in pools like this, it's, it's from a bygone era. I, I mean, it, it, it's like so many other things, I guess, in our society, Camille. We, we know better now. We understand that, wait a second, that's harmful, not just to the animals. Uh, we, we are stewards of our environment. And, and we know much better than this. Uh, the sanctuaries uh, are starting to crop up in different places right now because we understand that that's actually where they should be going. Uh, and one by one, as you mentioned, uh, this kind of behavior, this kind of treatment of animals uh, is, is, is being eradicated, uh, if not by law, by common sense. I mean, you know, you don't see traveling circuses with lions and tigers and bears anymore to, to a large extent because they say we just don't do that or shouldn't do that anymore. So this is this is really, I guess, a relic of a bygone era that uh, that, that we need to address here and need, and need to rectify. Yeah, that's absolutely right, Bill. I couldn't agree more. I think that at one point we all thought zoos were fine and it was educational and interesting to see animals. And now if I want to learn about whales and dolphins or elephants or tigers or any other animal, you know what I'm going to do? I'm not going to go to a zoo where you see sad animals pacing in tiny cages. I'm going to turn on Netflix and put on Planet Earth and watch mm-hmm. 18 footage of these animals in their natural habitat. 
And I think that film has really made uh, information about animals more accessible and has really inspired people to understand that their lives in the wild are so rich and their lives are so impoverished when they're in captivity. And that's why we're seeing this overwhelming movement of people away from thinking that places like zoos and aquariums are okay. Well, we're told that uh, this is probably going to go to court sometime in February. Uh, we'll certainly want to stay in touch and see what happens, what developments are going to be occurring. Uh, but I'm sure that there'll be a further conversation uh, down the road as to uh, how this is going to uh, all end up. Uh, Camille, I, I appreciate you jumping on on short notice to talk about this. I just wanted our listeners, because you and I have had conversations about this uh, over the years, and, and which led because of your advocacy uh, to, to this law actually uh, being passed in 2019 and, and to actually, as you mentioned, uh, use it to enforce uh, the standards that are now set, I think is, is going to be a very important part of this. Absolutely. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, Bill. I've appreciated our chats over the years, and I'm sure this won't be the last one. You betcha. Take care, Camille. We'll talk again soon. Camille Labchuk, a, a lawyer and executive director of Animal Justice. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about the Canadian economy and the hit that it's taken because of some of the stuff we've seen in the news the last little while. I mean, you know, wildfires in the summer, uh, horrendous flooding and things of that nature, of course, on the West Coast have really done some damage to supply chain issues. Uh, and that's hurting trade right across this country, and it's hurting our international trade. Uh, well, there's a summit that's going to be held that's going to address some of these things, and we need to talk about exactly what options are going to be available to try to mitigate any of this damage in the future. And uh, to that end, we're so pleased to welcome to the program Ian Lee, Associate Professor at the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Uh, Ian, a pleasure to have you back in the program. Hope you're doing well these days. I'm doing very well, thanks, Bill. Uh, when we look at issues like this, uh, there, there are man-made concerns and man-made problems and trade issues, uh, but supply chain is something that I guess an awful lot of us took for granted until all of a sudden it's taken away from us. That's right. And, and you know, supply chain is, you know, it has some of these mystical connotations almost. It's very basic. I mean, what we, we have these supply chains today in every country because our economies are vastly more complex than 50 or 100 years ago. You know, to use a really simplistic extreme point to make my point quickly, you know, and when we were uh, living in caves, cavemen, we didn't have any supply chains. It was really simple. You went out and you found an animal, you killed it, and you ate it. So you didn't have any grocery stores. You didn't have to worry about farmers shipping stuff to the grocery stores. You were it. And that was a nice, simple world, and we were unbelievably poor. And the studies have shown that the poverty was just extreme. And then as we became more and more sophisticated, I'm talking after the Second World War, we develop more and more sophisticated products that have more and more parts, whether it's an automobile, whether it's a computer, or any of the stuff you put in your house for a home renovation. And so your supply chains become longer and more complex. I mean, that, that's not a, a secret. And I mean, that, that when you look at it, that is the issue. And in Canada, because we're nowhere, even though we like to think we're an enormous, gigantic country, and we are geographically, but we're not in terms of economic complexity. We're only one-tenth the size of the U.S., so if you look at the map, and I've actually done this because look, be evidence-based. Put a map of all the railroad lines, the major railroad lines in the U.S. versus Canada, and they have many more railroad lines, major railroad lines. So they have, to use that modern word, they have diversity. They have a very mm -hmm. diverse rail network. The same with pipelines. Uh, the same with their trunk, their grid. Whereas we have much narrower supply lines, meaning we have two railroads, basically, two major railroad lines going from the West Coast to the East Coast. And uh, so if one of those uh, has experiences, you know, a uh, catastrophe like we saw, well, then you're really, really hit, or we saw it with the blockades. It doesn't have to be a, a, a disaster from, yeah. from uh, the weather. 
What worries me about this supply chain summit, I'm glad we're having it, let's be clear, but I'm worried that the government is going to sidetrack it off and talk about, use it as a platform to talk about global warming. And, you know, we're, we're way past, everyone knows about global warming, everyone knows something has to be done, everyone knows we have to decarbonize, but now we've got to bring it down from 50 or 100,000 feet and talk cold reality. And that means we need more roads. We need more rail roads. And infrastructure is just that. I was very critical. I think I was talking to you about a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago, because the government of Canada, in the budget at the time, rebranded infrastructure as things like daycare centers and Mm -hmm. hockey arenas. And I said, look, I'm not against daycare centers, and I'm not against hockey arenas, but that's not infrastructure. Infrastructure is, are the, is the stuff you use to move goods across the country. So that includes ports, railroads, highways, airports, and that is real infrastructure. And because for some reason this government doesn't, it doesn't, have a, it doesn't seem to be focused on it, and I'm talking about the actual budget, they're focused a lot more on consumption rather than capital investment. And infrastructure is your quintessential capital investment. The, the bad news is infrastructure is horrendously expensive. We're not talking a couple of million dollars, you know, to build another railroad line through the Rockies and across, you know, you're talking very major money. To rebuild the grid is probably going to run well north of a trillion dollars. But we have ignored the infrastructure of our country for a long time. We haven't, the Canadian Electricity Association says we haven't rebuilt the grid. We have not augmented the, the, the uh, Canadian highway the Trans-Canada Highway, since it was built. And even though the population is five, six, seven times greater, it's still the same Trans-Canada Highway. And that's why it's so congested. So we're going to have to have a serious conversation. And there's no point waving our arms and talking about this proves the that the climate change is real. We've got to get down to what are we going to do? How are we going to respond? And I'm suggesting we've got to be less, more diversified so we're not completely dependent on the part of Vancouver. Maybe uh, ship goods through the Prince Rupert, which I, I've actually visited Prince Rupert, and it's a it's a small port, but it has the capacity potential to become a much bigger port. And we need more rail lines, and we need to uh, broaden, expand the uh, Trans Canada Highway. I'm not sure that we'll, those kind of, those uh, topics will be discussed at this. Uh, summit. I think they'll talk a lot more about climate change and how pernicious it is and how we've got to do something and how the world's on fire and so forth. But we're, you know, in other words, we're going to deal with a lot of sloganeering, but I'm not sure we're going to be talking about what I'm talking about because it's frightfully expensive. Well, and, be, and, and well, there's another reason too, and it's the political reality. And, and I, I, I'm on side with you on this, Ian. Uh, yes, we need to talk about climate change and we need to talk about the impact it's having on the planet. Absolutely. Uh, and that needs to be ongoing. But that, that conference is down the hall, please, people. This is about transportation of goods. That's right. uh, and that's what we should be focusing on in this room. Uh, and, and governments, had, they, you know, they, they don't feel comfortable talking about it, Ian, because they feel it's at cross-purposes to the one that's going on down the hall. And there's got to be right. compatibility here. Right. We still need to move goods. Or we're not going to be able to get that lettuce that we want that's in the right. grocery store or that new shirt or whatever the case might be. And if we block that, as we just saw what happened in B.C., uh, you see the results. And that's a microcosm, really, isn't it, of, of the whole economy. You know, yeah. here in southern Ontario, we pride ourselves in the fact that, you know, we're, we're 45 minutes away from the U.S. border, which is one of the richest markets, uh, you know, on the eastern seaboard. Uh, whether you want to cross at Windsor or across the Niagara Falls in Buffalo, great. But as soon as that stops, we're in big trouble in this country because we export most of our stuff. 
That's right. And because we're such a large country, you know, we're, we, we pride ourselves on that, you know. We're 8,900 kilometers across, and we're a small population, only 38 million, smaller than the state of California, strung out across the second largest geographical country in the world. And that means you necessarily have to have infrastructure. And I agree that governments are, it's become less fashionable, not only because it's expensive, but I think the bigger reason is, and you just said it, that governments see it as spending on infrastructure as antithetical to their goals because, guess what? Trucks emit emissions. So do, so do railroads. So do airplanes. So do ports. But that's only because all human activity generates emissions because we use oil, gas, propane, natural gas. We use fossil fuels. That's just the reality of our economy until one day down the road, we eventually, I don't think it's going to be anytime soon. I think it's going to take longer than a lot of people realize, but one day we will decarbonize. But as a consequence, they're allowing, I think, government decision makers at the most senior levels, and we're obviously talking about the government of Canada, because a lot of these comes under the federal uh, ports, for example, under the Constitution, comes under the federal domain, so the railroads. And they see this as antithetical to their clean climate agenda. And so, you know, they can't, they don't seem to really want to come to terms with the fact that it's absolutely essential in a country of this size that you absolutely have to have railroads and pipelines and highways to ship the stuff. And I, I don't, you know, I think they're ideologically not there. And as a consequence, they want to talk more about, let's talk about the dangers of climate change and, you know, and do these, you know, the, and, you know, COPS 26 type speeches. But without, they don't want to get down to the concrete level, very hard concrete level, because it will necessarily involve solutions, policies that they don't like. Expanding roads, expanding trucks on the roads, expanding railroads, all of them emit emission, GHG emissions. And so, you know, they're living in a sort of an ideological paradise. While we won't talk about it, we won't deal with it, and, and maybe the problem will go away. Uh, or we'll just ignore the problem, and we and it and it's forcing the climate change is forcing, and these uh, uh, these um, you know natural disasters are forcing us to confront these issues. And with 38 million people, we can't just ignore it and say, oh well, you know, just suck it up, and uh, hopefully we'll muddle through because that's not a policy solution. Well, okay, but where's the adult voice here to to have this discussion? Uh, and and I don't disagree. I mean, even if we do go all electric, and you're right, that's not going to happen anytime soon. But, but that's, no. I guess, the ultimate goal. Still going to need roads, Ian, to put yeah. to, you know for these electric vehicles to travel on. Uh, so and and, and again to, for goods movement, uh, we're still going to yeah. need pipelines. And boy, you bring yeah. that up in Ottawa these days, and and yeah. you know you're. You, have to, you know what the kind of result is going to be for that. As a yeah. friend of mine over the weekend mentioned, he says, if you're really against pipelines, uh, then stop being a hypocrite. Go on outside and disconnect the uh, natural gas pipeline that's heating your house right now in December. Exactly. Uh, because that's what that's for. That's that's just yes. a small version of what they're doing out in West Coast right now. Exactly. We have to be pragmatic about this. Yes. And one more point, because, again, it's showing how the government is often working across purposes to itself. Um, on immigration, I support immigration. I don't want you to think that this is a closet criticism of immigration. I think we desperately need immigration. But the immigration, which we desperately need, is growing the country's population. The country's pop gets bigger and bigger. I've got the SAFCAN charts my students presented to me in their presentations, showing 1900 or 1950. It doesn't matter what year you use, Canada steadily grows its population. 
and grows it significantly. And more people need more housing in the suburbs. We need more railroads and more roads to deliver more stuff because more people eat more stuff and they go to school, and they have to live in homes. So we need more of everything, and we need the infrastructure to deliver that more of everything to the growing, bigger population. And so they strongly support immigration, the government of Canada, which I completely agree with. But then they turn around and say, but no, 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 we can't, you know, we can't grow the, the we can't make the suburbs get bigger. <laughs> We're going to put everybody in the downtown. We can't expand the roads because, hey, we don't like cars and trucks. And so they're they're really almost hoisted on their own policy petard. And I mean by that, they, they believe that global warming is, is evil, okay, everyone does, but they don't accept that until we get to that decarbonized world 30 or 40 or 50 years or more from now, we have to live in the present. We still have to build more houses, more schools, more roads, more pipelines to service the growing population. We're, we're forecast, StatsCan has three forecasts. Uh, low, medium, and high. So if you choose the midpoint, within by 2050, we're going to be well, uh, almost 60 million people. That's 22 million people more than now. And if anybody thinks you can put another 22 million people in a country and not add any roads or add any new suburbs, you're just dreaming. You're living in an alternate universe. But you're having that debate in Ottawa right now. We're having it in Hamilton and in London about the kind of transportation, yeah. about how cities grow. Uh, and and I, there are more than a few municipalities right now that are simply looking at those projections you just talked about and said, well, well you don't believe those. Yeah. <laughs> Based on what? You don't want to believe them because it, it, what it does is yeah. it indicates a need for doing something that a lot right. of these elected officials don't want to do. Precisely. And I'm not trying to change the subject because I see the subject of the urban expan suburban expansion as just no different than the debate on, on uh, infrastructure. I've testified before the City Council of Ottawa, and they are adamant. They, they know that the projections, they even accept the projections, are going to go from a million people in the city of Ottawa to a million five by 2050. That's only 30 years away, by the way. That's a yeah. 50% increase. And they're talking about, well, we're going to put them all in infill in the downtown. You can't put 500,000 people in the downtown of Ottawa. You just can't. And they won't accept that we have to expand the urban boundary. But that means more roads. Oh, they're against roads. And they're against, and it means more trucks because, you know, there's businesses out there and they have to, you know, Loblaws and Sobeys and grocery stores and Canadian tires and on and on and on. We all know that. And all those stores have to be stocked with trucks driving up with, with product to, you know, allow the stores to service their customers. So, I mean, we have a growth paradigm in Canada because we believe in immigration, but they won't accept that the immigration that we all support, or most of us support, means growth. And growth means more infrastructure. It means more houses. It means more roads. It means more pipelines. It means more railroads. It means more high-voltage electricity wires. But they're, they're, they're trapped. You know, they, they, want, they, they support immigration, but they won't let the word growth cross their lips. And so they're in this deep denial. It's, I mean, it, I really, and I'm not being unkind when I say this, Bill, I, I, I see them like the anti-vaxxers. You know, they're just in denial of the data, of the herd empirical data. There's no question we're growing. There's no question we bring in 350,000 new people a year to Canada. Yes, it stopped for one year during the pandemic, but it's going back. And they're debating right now in Immigration Canada going to 500,000 a year. That's a million and a half people coming in every three years. I support that. But my point is, that means growth and growth in everything. Roads, trucks, cars, pipelines, airports, ports. 
but they won't. On the one hand, they support the immigration, rah, 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 immigration. So do I. And then they turn around and say, oh, but we're going to do it without any growth. It's just, it's preposterous. It's truly living in an alternate universe. Well, which is why I share your uh, skepticism about just what they're going to decide on with this summit. We'll certainly be watching it. Uh, uh, Great to get your perspective on this, Ian. As always, thanks so much for this today. My pleasure. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Ian Lee from the Sports School of Business at Carleton University in Ottawa, and which uh, really just underscores what we've been talking about on this program for the last number of years, is you, you can't address all these problems in isolation and not understand that there are going to be ramifications to the other factors in our lives. And, and that, that has to be part of a more wholesome discussion about what's going to be happening. Supply chain, very important. Uh, climate change, very important. Uh, getting goods to market, very important. Growth, very important. All of them. Uh, and one has an impact on the other. As, as we've talked about many times, it's, it, it's like a water balloon. You know, you push on one side, it goes out this way. And, and, and conversely, uh, and, and we have to understand that we need to manage this, but it's going to have an impact on everything else, no matter what it is we decide. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.